0: Hello and welcome to the In Publishing Podcast. My name is James Evely and I'm the editor of In Publishing. My guest this time is Helen Fish, Group Chief Executive of Executive Grapevine, a B2B company that has transformed itself from being a traditional print publisher into a successful online one. Amongst many things, I asked Helen which metrics she particularly focused on.
1: I mean, as a business, we measure, you know, how many people, we measure um, how many unique visitors, we're looking at how many articles they're reading. But ultimately, I want to know how engaged a reader is and how long they're either reading or listening to the content that we're sharing. For me, that's the real measure.
0: She told me about what she'd learned about leadership on a visit to the US earlier in her career.
1: And I went to a conference and I heard a speech that really has stuck in my mind ever since. And it was it was someone who was talking about the qualities of leadership. And for me, the thing that really stuck out was instinct. Um, You have to trust your judgment. Um, If you see something that's not quite right, fix it. If you see an opportunity, grab it. Just trust your judgment and be swift to act
0: and what you thought the b two b sector should be focusing on over the next few years
1: I think choice I think it's got to be about um, personalization. People are used to personalization in their in their personal lives if you think about the world of consumer um, and I think we in the b 2 b sector seem to always follow what happens in the consumer markets um, and I think that will be the difference moving forward between success and failure.
0: Before we hear more from Helen, a quick word about our valued sponsors. We would like to thank our podcast sponsor, Air Business, a market leader in distribution and subscription management services for the publishing industry. Its end-to-end service includes subscriber acquisition and marketing strategy, worldwide distribution, digital mail and e-commerce fulfillment, and Warehouse and Freight Logistics. For more information, visit airbusiness.com. Helen Fish is Group Chief Executive of Executive Grapevine International, a B2B digital media company specialising in HR, recruitment and senior executive development. The company says it has over 250,000 members accessing daily news, features, virtual events, podcasts, videos, And TV on demand. Helen Fish, welcome to the In Publishing podcast.
1: Hello, nice to talk to you.
0: Now, first of all, Helen, can you tell us a bit more about Executive Grapevine, what you do, and the markets you serve?
1: Um, Executive Grapevine started life as a directory publisher um, 40 years ago. In fact, we had our anniversary last year. But I think it would be more accurate um, if I was describing my business right now as to be um, one in marketing services. We don't have a single product which uses paper. We're very much a digital business where we're using content as a catalyst to get our audience in front of our sponsors. Um, And today clients are interested in leads to feed their sales teams and readers want unique content that makes a difference. And over the last five years, we've transformed our business to deliver that. The markets that we predominantly serve um, a human resources and c-suite functions and we have content solutions across all 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 types of news features webinars podcasts magazines virtual events and recently um premium membership
0: uh, when you say magazines are those print or digital
1: we have nothing on paper everything is digital
0: okay okay so you so you've transformed from being i believe you used to have a print product so you used to be a traditional print publisher but you've obviously transformed to a, a successful online one what were the key milestones along the way, and the choices you had to make during that journey?
1: I think coming from a publishing background, first and foremost, um, knowing your audience was something that was always drummed into me um, as being really important. And I've always invested heavily in research and understanding who your audience are. You've got to walk. Uh, you've got to walk the steps of your readers. And I think you, you you can't have great products and ideas unless you really know who you're reaching out to, and you can predict what they want um and it's you know and without that it's hard to see how you can have a successful and sustainable business over multiple deco- uh, over multiple decades and I think when you combine this core belief in knowing who your readers are with fantastic technology and systems, we certainly wouldn't have been able to transition from a traditional publisher relying on, you know, branding and corporate advertising to the marketing services business that we are now, where something like 90% of our revenue comes from lead generation uh, products. Um, So had we not invested in the demographics of our audience and being able to track their behaviours, we wouldn't have been able to do that. And we don't wait for people to come and find find us, we go and find them. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing um, I think is probably GDPR. And that certainly brought some huge challenges to all publishing uh, businesses. And at a very early stage in that journey, um, we decided to transition um, from an engaged uh, audience where we were happy that if they opened an email, uh, we, we would continue to send to them, to an opt-in audience. And we were the first in our sector to do that. And that caused some conflicts within our business between you know, our sales team who were wanting, on the one hand, to claim a large audience. But for me, I felt in the long term, the business would benefit far more from having an engaged audience. And the more we knew about what they wanted and their behaviours, the quicker and more efficiently we could deliver on commercial campaigns. And therefore we could target editorial content types um, to deliver that. It was a win-win situation. And I think that decision has paid dividends over and over and over again in the last five years. Then I think perhaps the third thing um, is the creation of a marketing and delivery team. We didn't have one of those four years ago. And today it's the largest team in our business. And the head of that team I've just appointed to our board. And that really kind of says how important that function is to us. And that's where all our data and analytics and market intelligence sits. We measure everything. Um, All the usual stats from, you know, page impressions, time on page, number of articles, listening length. But we've taken that one step further and we are much more interested now in analysing behaviours and trends of readers right down to individual articles and topic types. We're interested in lifetime journeys. How do we take people from our sector who we know about? How do we onboard them as readers? How do we take them to become registered readers and ultimately um, paid members for our premium content? You know, we have to be successful um, in terms of what we're doing to get that right, because not every reader is equal. And that's something that I feel very passionately about. You have to be able to know who your decision makers are versus who your influences are, who's coming into your readership pipeline. Um, And we have to be able to distinguish between those reader types to deliver the quality um, that our sponsors and readers want.
0: And in terms of metrics, you, you mentioned you know, a range of metrics. What what to you are the, the first things you look for in terms of metrics? What are the things which stand out as the really key ones?
1: The ones I'm interested in are time on page. I mean, as a business, we measure you know, how many people, we measure um, how many unique visitors, we're looking at how many articles they're reading. But ultimately, I want to know how engaged a reader is and how long they're either reading or listening to the content that we're sharing. For me, that's the real measure. And then secondly, do they go on to look at something else? I'm interested in sustainability in terms of our reader journey, not just someone who comes on, looks at something and then bounces off. It's how do we retain and keep their interest?
0: And you mentioned GDPR, which obviously was a a huge talking point a couple of years ago. You obviously saw that as an opportunity more than a threat.
1: I saw it as the biggest opportunity to take market share. Um, And it was certainly a catalyst for us in terms of transitioning our business from one where we were relying on selling mailing lists to one where we took control over all of the data that left our business for us, it's, it's created the biggest transition in terms of where our revenue comes from. And it was certainly the catalyst from us transitioning from a traditional publisher relying on branding and advertising to becoming a marketing services business where, we, where as I said, the majority of uh, what we do is all about lead generation. Uh, so we have to know who our readers are. And that really was the catalyst for us in terms of starting to capture their permission uh, to retain their business details.
0: Uh, and you mentioned some earlier misgivings by the sales teams earlier in the process, who presumably might have seen the numbers go down initially. Um, what, what's their thinking now?
1: Uh, they are reaping the war uh, They are reaping the reward over and over again. Um, I think looking back. Um, They were very hesitant about it being a good idea. Um, Advertisers were very hesitant about um, asking people uh, to open a gate to read content. And there's some content that we've left ungated, which is advertisers' content, but all our own content is gated. Um, And knowing who your readers are has created more engagement, not less. Um, The majority of people who are um, engaging with us and, and who we work with they are opt-in readers and um, because we know what they want we're able to deliver more precisely to them it's a win-win situation um, it stops the spamming it stops endless emails to people that uh, you don't know who they are you don't know really what they want. We know precisely what they want because they're tracking everything they do, and it allows us to deliver content that we know they want to consume
0: now in terms of your digital transformation journey i mean it sounds like it's would you say that it's complete now um what still needs to be done?
1: Nothing is ever complete. Um, it's very hard to say that there isn't anything more to do. And I think the next thing uh, for us in, in the B2B world is I think you always have to look to the consumer markets to see where where the trends are. And I think for us, it's about, you know, one of the things is about personalised content. And for us, this is work in process. We have the capacity already to deliver personalized content. And it's something that we offer to all of the readers who choose to opt in uh, to what we do. But I think sometimes you have to wait for your audience to catch up with you. Um, and a lot of people opt in, and they don't make those choices. And sometimes we kind of push out content um, in their personal feeds that we know they're going to be more engaged in. And we're using data and analytics to do that. Um, so I think we're kind of we're helping them along that personalised um, content journey. Um, so that's, that's certainly one thing. Um, the second thing I think is it's, it's clients are looking for us to get more involved in their sales process. I think sales teams are inherently becoming more and more lazy. When I started life um, in telesales, you had to pick up the phone and you had to make 100 calls a day. I can't think of a sales team in the media industry that still do that anymore. Certainly when you're working on larger accounts and you're working with companies who have quite sophisticated uh, wants and needs when it comes to marketing, um, you have to... You have to bring those clients to you. And we have an entire team that that, that work in pre-sales, warming clients up. So the sales team just come in to do the bits that they're really, really good at. And that's negotiating deals. They don't business develop in the same way that I business developed when I came into this industry 30 years ago. Um, And I think clients are looking for us to do more and more of that. And it's how far up that chain can we get? Is it about just finding them a name or have we got to go one step further and have we got to look at, you know, setting up meetings or have we got to look at the behaviours? Um, and that's that's a dilemma that we're, we're we're working through at the moment.
0: Where are you in that? Thinking at the moment, as you say, from one extreme where you simply pass on a name to another name extreme, when you pass on somebody who's been thoroughly warmed up. Where are you currently in that process?
1: My personal view is you have to be able to control it to have a value. The minute the control moves to somebody else, I think is where we as a business can't add any value, Um, and value is what we charge for. That's how we make our money. Um, So if someone doesn't turn up to a meeting, we can't control that, but we can pass a name. But we can pass over a lot more than a name. And I think for me, the next stage isn't setting up meetings. I think it's about improving the quality of the names that you send over. So the next project, I think, for us is really looking at intent data. Um, You know, what are the content types? What are the subjects? What are the audience reading? And how can you support your clients with some advisory services to reach those? so it goes beyond just taking a booking and you know doing a lead generation campaign it's everything from supporting them to look at what types of content are more likely have success the types of subjects that people that they want to read in right down to not only finding the right companies but for us because we have the data it's the people in those companies and we've got the data and analytics to help our clients get there so for us that's the next step um, in our digital journey.
0: And we've probably touched on it already but the, the main pillars of your publishing strategy are what would you say what would you say they are?
1: OK, I've got several. I think in
0: okay. the, 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 the
1: top two, the top two without a shadow. of. Oh, no, dam. we
0: can have more than two. More uh, than I've two. got five. Yeah. I've got
1: five, I think. let okay. let's the have top, them all then, please. Let's have them all. Hand in hand, the, you know, in joint first place. Um, you have got to have a handle on your business performance. Um, we use data and analytics all the time um, through every process, product and team in the business. I'm interested in the stories that the data tells us. If you can't do something with a piece of data, just don't collect it. I'm not interested in just passing a spreadsheet through. You've got to have some value from collecting it. Uh, So I think that's the first thing. Joint first is to deliver an outstanding experience to all stakeholders of the business. So whether it's a reader, a client, um, an employee, that is first and foremost, um, a top priority for us. Then I think the other three, um, we don't stand still. So innovation and creativity, we have to constantly be looking at what we do, how we do it, how can we be better? It's ingrained in the DNA of our business. I've never believed in relaunches. For me, change happens daily. Um, i don't worry if something fails. we learn from it. We move on it's an opportunity to grow it's not an opportunity to be disappointed. Um, then I think instinct early in my career, I once went over to the states and I went to a conference and I heard a speech that really has stuck in my mind ever since and it was It was someone who was talking about the qualities of leadership and For me, the thing that really stuck out was instinct. Um, you have to trust your judgment Um, if you see something that's not quite right fix it if you see an opportunity grab it just trust your judgment and be swift to act Um, and for me that has paid dividends over and over again and then I think the final thing is uh, leadership and you have to surround yourself by people who are smarter and more intelligent than you are Um, in each of their functions than I am as a CEO. I see myself as the glue that holds my top team together. They are the people, however, that deliver the products and performance of the company. So I think that's the mantra that I use to run the business.
0: And in terms of revenue streams, you mentioned lead generation, but how would you sum up your revenue streams and where do you see the opportunities? Yeah.
1: Well without a doubt, we are a marketing services business now we we, we carry very little advertising. Um, our clients want to know um, who 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 the readers are and they want to start conversations with them and We do that through lots of different content types webinars white papers and and more recently um, events and historically that might have been face to face events we used to do round tables we used to run a very big conference and then I think over the last Um, 18 months, that's transitioned into virtual events. And I think what we found is how much more market intelligence and data we can collect on behalf of our clients in a virtual event that simply face to face couldn't do. And not only can we collect more data, we can do it far more cost effectively. So actually, we can put them in touch with more people and provide them with more information about it. Um, So for us, it's a substantial part of what we do. And then I think in terms of moving uh, moving into the future, marketing services is where I see um, future growth. So I've, I've already mentioned um, intent data, how far down that sales pipeline do we really want to go? And as I said, it's as far as we can control it. If we can't control it, we can't own it. And owning is where the value is.
0: And in terms of revenue streams, you, you mentioned you know those are obviously your main pillars. But Paid membership is obviously something which you're exploring. Can you tell us a bit more about the thinking behind that?
1: Yes, for us, we've been trialling this really just for the last eight months. So it's an important area of business for us, but I wouldn't describe it as core. It's certainly a way to deliver in-depth reports, problem-solving content to readers who we know are highly engaged And we've had to fine tune this proposition several times um, during the last eight months. We've looked at the recruitment and onboarding journey. We've looked at which articles are more likely to bring readers in versus what they do when they actually, you know, arrive. We've tried free, we've tried paid. We've done lots of testing um, to see what's actually going to work. Um, And for us, I think we've arrived at the... um, the, the, the thoughts that you've got to get the buy-in up front in terms of this is paid. If it's free, it doesn't have the same value to a reader. So you've got to get that credit card in right up at the beginning, even if it's only for a pound. Um, and that certainly has provided better conversion rates for us. Um, you know, we've done our month's trial at a pound and then they go on to a more normal mem- mem- membership so for us it's been it's been organic growth it's been very steady um it's a nice to have but it's not going to transform the business
0: and uh, does it in any way impact on your marketing services because if you're presumably limiting some of the content which non-members can access does that limit your marketing services opportunities it
1: hasn't impacted any way shape or form not at all um in terms of the numbers of readers that 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 we're accessing for marketing services they are running into the hundreds of thousands in terms of those that are more um, appropriate and are going to engage in a, in a premium membership. You're talking hundreds, so it is a fraction of the audience.
0: Uh, do you see in the future it developing further, or you're just going to see how it goes and and take it from I, there?
1: I, I do see it developing further, and I, and I see it as being the qualitative end of what we do in terms of reports and in depth um analysis and comment on the industry. But that's not what everybody wants. And in terms of some of the people who are more likely to sign up for that, they tend to be more senior, and they tend to be people that don't have access to that in their wider networks. So we're starting to build up a persona of what a typical member might look like. And the more we know about their behaviours, what they read, when they read, and what they're looking for, the better that we're going, you know, the better we're going to be able to deliver that um, over a period of time. I think it'll be small now, I, and it'll be niche. Hmm.
0: Now, as we emerge from the pandemic, um, what, what for you have been the key takeaways from the, the the 18 months we've all just been through?
1: I think it has to come down to people. People are the most important thing in a situation um, that we in the situation that we've just come through. And I think you have to, as a business leader, invest your personal time to retain those people who you know will carry you through. Time is everything. And over the last 18 months, I've spent hours doing one-to-ones with every employee. And I know they have managers that help and support them. But I think it's really important that everybody in the business knows that they're valued and you're going to look after them and you're going to take care of them. Um, And knowing how they are coping as individuals and supporting them through uh, the uncertainty that we've all had to face has certainly brought our company together. We created our own health and well-being program to help a lot of our younger employees. So that for me certainly has been one of the big takeaways is that we should carry on doing that. And that's not just something um, for a pandemic. I think the second thing probably is honesty. Um, And that's about honesty in terms of the performance of the business. Don't make the fact that we're working in a challenging economic situation a problem. Make your employees part of the solution and empower them to make a difference. We aligned the remuneration of all of our staff to the performance of the business, which wasn't something that we that we'd ever done before. Uh, we're always um very much in the carrot uh scenario when it comes to reward and recognition um and as it turned out when i look back in the last 18 months every single member of staff has been paid 100 percent of their salary no one had to take um a, a pay cut but they were part of the solution in terms of finding different ways to work with clients um and it certainly brought everyone together they had a common purpose and then i think the biggest thing is we became a virtual business overnight you know we transitioned from one where the office was the core you know it was it was the heartbeat it was the organ grinding um aspect of our organization to one where teams is now the hub of our organization uh something like 25% of our employees um, are no longer able to commute uh, to our office, which is in Hertfordshire, because they that they don't live here anymore. So we are committed long term now to becoming a virtual business, and we have to look at ways to manage people, whether they want to go to the office to meet their colleagues, whether they want to have team meetings, how we, you know, develop this hybrid approach to running a business where the location of the employee has no bearing whatsoever on your expectations and the performance of the business. So I think that's probably the biggest change um, because we've no intentions of going back to being an office-based business.
0: Will you retain an an office in any shape or form?
1: I think we will because I think it'll just be a smaller space. I think when people there's still a need for people to get together and we would still like to have that option where teams can come together so I think going to the office is less about going in plugging your laptop in and and you know having your own personal workspace and hot desking and it's much more about a destination where you go to meet and collaborate and to you know have create creative ideas in terms of the way your team is going to go about solving problems and coming up with new ideas and initiatives and I think that's that type of thing definitely has its benefits if you can get people um, in front of each other. And I think that mentoring of younger staff, also, um, it's much better if you can do that face to face. But that said, we have people now based all over the country, you know, our furthest employee lives in Glasgow, we have another one in Manchester, another one in Birmingham, another one on the East Coast, we can't always get those people together. Um, It's impossible. So our default is a virtual business. The fact that some people can meet face-to-face is something that we would like to encourage, but it has to be an as well as not an instead of what we do virtually and remotely to bring the company together.
0: Now, you mentioned um, during um, the pandemic, providing your services to clients in different ways, which obviously everyone's had to do. What were the key different ways that, that you did for your for your clients?
1: I think the, the biggest thing, without a shadow of a doubt, um, it was, is in the virtual event space. Um, historically, we used to have one big event a year and we used to do a number of round tables, which were all in, in-person events for our clients. Um, and we saw the pandemic as a huge opportunity to think differently about how we um, supported clients and readers to come together. And when we looked at some of the virtual event uh, platforms, it, very, it was very much focused on someone being an avatar. And um, I thought, you know, I'm not an avatar. I can't really see myself um, working very well or this supporting what we need to do as a business. It didn't really support that whole unique experience that I would expect um, of an event. So we developed our own platform where the user experience was at the heart of it. Um, And that was something that, uh, we did literally in a hundred days from deciding to have an event, we developed and built our own platform. We pulled together, um, sponsors who we, we knew the sponsors already because we'd worked with them in the past, but we hadn't ever worked with them in a virtual capacity before. And we put together, um, an audience uh, that were not used to watching virtual events. And so for us, it was a brand new revenue stream. And last year we ran, I think, three events. This year we're running four. Um, And it's been a phenomenal success in terms of providing great content. And I think that's the key theme: Good content always sells, whether it's virtual or whether it's in person, I think that same principle of making sure that you've got the quality right um, and you've got content that your audience wants to listen to. And that's about good preparation, good briefing, making sure that the people who are going to be taking part know what goods looks like. It allows you to get rid of the corporate slide decks that um, often speakers want to share. We get those thrown out. And I think speakers really appreciate that they want to know what good looks like they want to know how they can make a difference and that was the same approach that we'd all always had for face to face events and we just transitioned that through to the virtual world and i think from our sponsors perspective because we're a marketing services business we were very much focused on providing some engagement metrics it wasn't enough for us just to say someone turned up or someone registered i wanted to really look at Uh, the quality of that person who'd registered. You know, what was that journey between signing up to actually turning up? How long were they actually online for? How many of our sessions did they listen to? And then we also gave our sponsors the opportunity to have a whole host of resources on that page. So if a a user was interested in that client, there were more assets for them to download. And that whole uh, series of metrics that we were able to provide to clients was really unique at the time. Um, a lot of the online platforms simply weren 't providing that insight into the audience that we felt was so important, and that really came from our background um, as as providing a lot of lead generation, so we simply applied that to the virtual world as well
0: and what, what is the secret of keeping an engage- or making increasing engagement for a virtual event because obviously at a virtual event it 's much easier to to leave the room so to speak than it is in, a, in person so what what are the tricks to to make to keep people Engage longer.
1: Certainly, a big name pulls somebody in without a shadow of a doubt. Problem solving, I think, is the key. Um, if if you're competing with somebody's time, there's got to be something in it for them. And I think there have been a huge number of events in the market where the content has been very weak. And I think one of the things that we've really set out to try and do is to help people find solutions to the problems that they're finding every day. And it's a common theme in the content that we have in our events, the content that we run on membership, is what can I learn? How can I go back to my you know, my workspace? And what difference can I make? What tools do I need? What are the learnings? What are the insights? Rather than just an interesting case study, is what does it mean to me? And I think those fundamental principles of really good, sticky, insightful content come through over and over again in the virtual world. And if you deliver that, you are far more likely to keep people engaged. And not only in your session, if you keep them to the bottom of your session, they are much more likely to click on to the next.
0: Uh, and what do you think the future of virtual events is because obviously in person events are starting to return do you think virtual events are here to stay
1: That's an interesting it's an interesting question I think there's a real dilemma I think if you talk to a client certainly everybody is desperate to get back to in person events and I have absolutely no doubt that the demand is very high but I personally have one big reservation I do not believe that the audience demand Is aligned to this. And I think there is still a reluctance for many people uh, to attend and travel to any large scale events. And I think that has diminished permanently. We're, We're in that situation, I think, where the majority of organisations are starting to develop this hybrid approach to the you know to the workplace where people will spend some time at home and some time in the office. There are very few businesses that are saying it's a hundred percent in the office and I think you know most of those are in financial services. So I think organisers are going to find it very difficult to entice people um, if they're organising an event on a day that someone has set aside to work at home for that person to make a dedicated journey um, to a large scale event, when we've shown them, there are different ways to get uh, that kind of information and and, and from from the virtual world, where I do think uh, the in-person events are really going to have to um, think about, and I think this is where the advantage comes, is when you're looking to meet and develop personal networks, and I can see the real need for bespoke, very targeted focus groups to come together where you've got quality time with other delegates and sponsors rather than large scale footfall conferences. And I think it'll be some time before um, those come back and are deemed to be successful in terms of footfall rather than just sponsors wanting um, to go there. And then I think cost is a consideration Um, There are different ways of doing things. Um, And it's all about how far down that sales pipeline do we as organisers want to go? Certainly, the quality of people that you get at events, I've noticed more and more when you get senior people signing up on the day itself, they often swap out for more junior members of staff. Um, And that's that's very irritating um, for someone that's invested a large amount of money in sponsoring an event. But I think when in the virtual world, when we're putting things together, certainly in the virtual events, people have an opportunity to come back and watch that in their own time and space and watch it on demand. Um, And that just provides repeated and ongoing opportunities uh, for an audience to engage with a client um, and in a way that you just simply can't do that in an in-person event. You've got a one off opportunity and then it's gone.
0: So looking ahead to 2022, what what do you think your own mix of events will be? Will they be mostly virtual or will you see how the next few months pan out? I
1: think the majority of what we do will be virtual, with the exception of highly focused, bespoke events for clients. But they will be small and they'll be very targeted. And I think that will be the right blend for us. Where it's one to many, I think virtual provides a better set of metrics it's easier to engage it's easier um it's better value for money where it's about highly targeted conversations that are wanted then i think small and bespoke um provides a better option and i think we'll do the two extremities i think that will be the right blend for
0: us uh, and your events um, platform which you've created i believe you're marketing that to your hr audience um What what was the thinking behind that? And is developing software solutions something that other publishers should be thinking of?
1: Developing software solutions and being a marketing services businesses are two completely different. um, They're two completely different businesses. And in terms of developing a product for our own internal use versus developing a standalone product that a third party can use, is a completely different, um, it requires a completely different set of skills. And we have had to bring in external developers uh, to take what we have onto a, onto the next stage so other, other people can use that. And we've only just finished that. It's been a far more complex journey, I think, um, than I could have anticipated. And we wanted to make sure that it was robust, And although we, as you know, our internal team were very used to using it, it had to pass that outstanding experience test that I put to everything. Um, And we spent a long time making sure that it's easy to use and it provides the metrics that we know that our clients want. And in fact, it was our sponsors who requested it. Um, They'd said it had been the best experience they'd ever had when it came to being part and sponsoring um, a virtual event. And they were very keen to be able to use it for their own um, events internally and other things that they did. And that was really the catalyst for us. Uh, doing it so for us, it's certainly a new business opportunity moving forward, um, and it's an exciting uh, it's an exciting thing for us to do. But we've set, we, we've developed it as a separate company. It can't get in the way of what we do every day in terms of delivering marketing services to our core audience. For us, it'll be a new business venture.
0: So on your website, and in fact, Helen, I think you referred to it earlier. You say that um, quote our core value is to create an outstanding user experience for all our clients, readers and employees. Um, Can you tell us a bit more about what this actually means in practice?
1: It means putting people first. Whether they're an employee, a reader, a client, or in fact any stakeholder of the business, how we treat, communicate, engage and support everyone, it makes a difference. Nobody's a number or a KPI. They're individuals with wants and needs. And I think as a business, putting people first at the heart of our strategy makes the difference. Um, You could take the systems and products and ideas out of our business, but without the people to make them successful, we wouldn't have a business. So that is where I personally prioritize my time. And then I think the second thing is about creating personalised experiences. So whether that's content for readers and targeting so it's something that you know they want to read, or whether it's uh, your employees and making them feel that they are, as an individual, important to the business, it's about creating opportunities for not finding connections, but aligning the way you treat your people internally with the way you treat your readers and your clients. It all has to go in the same direction. It all has to align.
0: Now, you've been a business leader for 30 years plus. Um, What, in your experience, is the secret to successful leadership? And I think you you probably might have touched partly on that already.
1: I think you have to treat people how you would expect to be treated yourself. You have to be compassionate when you need to be. You have to inspire those around you to come on the journey with you. You have to tell stories. I'm a great storyteller. People remember messages far more than a string of commands and facts. I think first and foremost, I'm the mother of two daughters. So a work-life balance, I believe, is absolutely essential. You have to be able to be creative. You have to think quickly and putting your work down allows you to recharge and bring a fresh perspective uh, to, to your work. And you have to be able to respond to challenges and threats to the business swiftly. When something isn't working, don't wait for it to fail. Sort it. Um, and I think having the energy to do that is really, really important. And then I think from you know, I, I'm personally a very creative person. I'm not new, numeric at all. But you have to get a handle on the numbers. It doesn't matter whether it's finance. It doesn't matter whether it's business performance. You have to own them because they help you make better informed decisions. I, for example, will look at a spreadsheet and I will instinctively know whether it feels right. My business partner, on the other hand, will look at a spreadsheet sheet and every line, and she'll tell you where it's not right, so it's a really good combination that we have between us
0: Now you mentioned work life balance there and the importance of maintaining a healthy one Do you think people work from home when they're working from home It's more difficult because it's harder to get away and if so, how do you encourage people are there any strategies you would you tell your your team to to be able to manage that? better
1: i think it's a blend i think it's very hard if you say this is home and this is work um when you're working at home it is it's very much a blended situation and what we do every day is that we have check-ins and we use teams to do that and when someone is ready to be in that work frame and space of mind they'll log on in the morning and they say hello good morning and everybody else in the business knows that they're ready to have conversations. They're ready to join, um, team meetings. But if they don't say good morning, it also is a message for us to say, Oh, why hasn't that person logged on? Is something wrong? We're just going to go and check up on them and make sure everything's okay. And then, you know, if they want some downtime, they put their, I'm just having a break on. So again, people will respect that home space. We also have, um, meetings every day on a team by team basis, not because we're a meeting company, because we want that opportunity for people to talk to each other in a way that you might have a convo- you know, a casual conversation, uh, you know, while you're making a cup of coffee, we have to create um, the online equivalent of that. And so getting people together in the morning, formalizing what you're going to do with the day, how you're feeling is something that always happens. And then we do that at the close of the day as well, because that kind of gives you closure in terms of your day. We also come together as a business several times a week because we want to share business performance. We want to share ideas. We want to be creative. But on a Friday afternoon, we have something called Friday fun and no business is discussed at all. So whilst we, you know, historically we might have all gone out for a drink and we might have all, you know, celebrated the end of the working week, we come together as a business and we do something different. We've had quizzes, we've had escape rooms, um, each team a different, uh, so each week a different team um, runs that. And it's just a way to help people uh, create personal um create their personal networks within the company because you work much better if you're working with a friend. So we have to create different ways of helping people uh, create personal connections within the business. One of the things that we did during the pandemic, which was a huge amount of fun, um, is that we did a virtual walk um, and we did it around the UK because we knew people were at home and we wanted to encourage them to take breaks. Um, And we wanted to encourage a little bit of flexibility. So it fitted in with the personal circumstances of the individual employee. So we walked around the UK together and then we walked across America together um, and everyone would share their steps. And it provided us a a, a talking point, um, something that we could all share. And And if you create those situations, you start to create friendships, work friendships. And if people trust and like each other, then they're much more likely to want to work together. And it's it's just delivered, you know, amazing and outstanding business performance for us over the last 18 months. And it's something that we will continue to do.
0: It sounds amazing. I must ask, how do you walk across around the UK virtually?
1: You count your steps, you convert your steps to miles, and then you go from one we started in London and then we went out to the Essex coast and then we worked our way anti-clockwise around. So every day, everybody would work out how many steps they were. We'd aggregate what that, what, what that was equivalent to in miles. And we then looked on the map where that would have taken us had we actually done that together.
0: Now, looking at the, the wider B2B sector, um, what, what do you think the sector as a whole needs to focus on, particularly over the next few years?
1: I think choice. I think it's got to be about um, personalization. People are used to personalization in their in their personal lives if you think about the world of consumer. Um, and I think we in the B2B sector seem to always follow what happens in the consumer markets. Um, and I think that will be the difference moving forward between success and failure everything has to be accessible on your phone. I think in the pandemic, that was less so because people were at home. So we noticed a trend in everyone accessing things from their uh, desktops rather than their mobiles. But I think moving forward, where that work life balance is far more blended, you have to deliver content in whatever way, in whatever shape, manner or form, your audience wants it. So whether that's, on the go, whether that's live, whether that's on demand, you have to be very um, creative, very flexible and adaptable in terms of what you do. I think most of all, you have to have unique, sticky content, invest in your journalists, and you will reap the rewards.
0: That's good advice now Helen. Uh, one question we finally we ask every guest on the podcast, um, our final question um, outside of work, um, how do you relax? Two
1: things: The first thing I do is I walk, and my business partner also walks, and my business partner happens to be my sister, and I think we are sisters by chance, and we are business partners and friends by choice, and it's a perfect combination to run a business. And we have so many meetings walking, which is fantastic. When I'm not walking, I cycle. I never sit still. Um, I trained as a breeze champion five years ago. So that's part of British Cycling uh, that was, it was an initiative set up to encourage women back into cycling. And over the last five years, I've, left, left, I've led hundreds of rides um, encouraging ladies to get back on their bikes I'm, a, I'm at my most content when I'm on my bike exploring. I
0: love it. That sounds fantastic. So, so how do you encourage um, women to, to get back on their bikes?
1: Step by step. I think you have to take away the, the nerves. You have to make it easy. You have, to, you have to encourage them that when they come with you, you're not going to be fast. You're not going to leave them behind. They're going to be with people who have empathy You are going to be friendly and it's going to be an enjoyable and safe experience where having a cup of coffee halfway through a ride and a good chit chat is at the heart of everything that you do. And I think that's a good recipe.
0: Helen, that sounds very rewarding. Helen Fish, thank you very much for being our guest on the In Publishing podcast.
1: Thank you. Nice to talk to you.
0: A final word from our valued podcast sponsor. Business is trusted by 4,000 publications and 3 million happy subscribers, with 10 million customer records on file. It processes £500 million pounds each year in 22 currencies and delivers over 300 million items. Find out more at airbusiness.com. Thank you very much to Helen for being our guest this time. I think if you follow her advice and create an outstanding experience for all your stakeholders, then you can't go far wrong. If you'd like to know more about Helen and her team, go to executivegrapevine.com and you can follow Helen on Twitter where her handle is at fishhelen. You can catch up with our previous podcast on the podcast page at inpublishing.co.uk and we can be contacted by email editorial at uk. Thank you for listening and do join me in two weeks' time for another in-publishing podcast. Bye for now.